This is David Swanson speaking. Welcome to this webcast with Tim Shorak and Trevor Tim. A few preliminary uh, instructions and recommendations. This is going to be 60 minutes with questions coming from myself, uh, potentially from one of our two speakers to the other, uh, and from any of you who are listening. Uh, and I see that number clicking up as I talk, uh, people listening on the webcast and on the telephone. Uh, if you are on the telephone uh, and you really want to ask a question, uh, nobody did this yesterday, but you can. You can tweet to Roots Action, Roots underscore Action, uh, if you can get on Twitter and tweet a, a, a public tweet to that. Uh, or with that in it, you will uh, you will get a question to me. But if you are listening on the webcast, it's very easy, and you can type in a question uh, at the bottom, and it will show up, and I will read it for our guests. Uh, and you should be, and let me know by uh, typing it in if you aren't, you should be seeing a graphic with our two speakers' uh, photos and bios. Uh, but by way of introduction, Tim Shorak is a Washington, D.C.-based investigative journalist, uh, he's the author of a book called Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Outsourced Intelligence. Over the past 35 years, his work has appeared in lots of publications in the U.S. and elsewhere. The Nation, Salon, Daily Beast, Mother Jones, Progressive, Foreign Policy in Focus, Asia Times, among them. He is frequently on the radio as a commentator on intelligence, contracting, foreign policy, East Asia, and in particular, North and South Korea. Uh, he has been on NPR's Fresh Air, Democracy Now!, and many others, and I would note, including uh, my own show, Talk Nation Radio. Radio. He's been on to talk about Korea. Trevor Tim is a co-founder and the executive director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation. He is a journalist, activist, lawyer. He writes a twice-weekly column you should read at The Guardian on privacy, free speech, and national security. He has contributed to The Atlantic, Al Jazeera, Foreign Policy, Harvard Law and Policy Review, PBS Media Shift, and Politico, among others. Uh, Tim and Trevor, welcome to the webcast. Hey, thanks Thank for having let's, uh, let's start with a few questions from me. Uh, and anyone listening, uh, feel free to type your questions and comments in at any time, and I'll see them show up. Uh, let's start with you, Tim. I know that you recently had an unusual honor of being made a, an honorary citizen of the city of Gwangju, South Korea, uh, in, in gratitude for reports you had done on the U.S. role in a 1980 military coup in South Korea, uh, something that I understand you learned about largely through FOIA, through Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, which is a, a one way of squeezing information out of our government. Can you talk about FOIA and how FOIA compares to uh, a whistleblower, a source, uh, other means of gathering information? Uh, sure. Yes, it was a great honor for me. I was invited to Gwangju, which is southwestern South Korea, where in 1980 there was a people's uprising against military rule. Uh, the Korean military and the United States military have a joint command that's led in times of war by a U.S. general. So there's very close relations there. In this particular instance, uh, the Korean generals had uh, uh, declared martial law in May 1980 and had sent 
troops and special forces to various parts of the country to enforce their martial law. And in this city of Guangzhou, which is sort of a historical area of resistance to central government, uh, the people fought back uh, the first couple days that the martial law troops were there. They massacred hundreds of people with bayonets and M16s and baton, you know, beating them. And uh, in, in South Korea, every male must serve in the military. And so you use firearms. And so people, you know, raided the uh, uh, local uh, uh, places where there was uh, firearms and uh, started fighting back. And they actually seized the city and held it for five days uh, and ran the city themselves. It's, uh, uh, it's very kind of an amazing story. And people compare it to the Paris Commune, the way the whole community pitched in and, you know, shared food and helped the rebels uh, and, you know, uh, gave blood and all this. And I was following this very closely because I had grown up in Korea at the, you know, at the time I was following it very closely. So I knew a lot of what happened. And when I went back there in, in 1985, uh, as a journalist, I learned much more about what had actually transpired in that, in that city at that time. But what happened was the rebels held the city and they wanted to have a peaceful end to the, to the, uh, standoff with the Korean military, and instead the Carter administration gave the Korean military permission to move troops from the DMZ, where they're supposed to be protecting South Korea against North Korea. Uh, they sent them down to Kwangju and put down this uprising, and many, the people of Kwangju felt very betrayed. Many people in South Korea felt very be betrayed by the United States because they thought the United States was there to help them uh, you know, you know, have a democracy and, and, and have freedom of speech and freedom of association. Uh, but that turned out not to be the case. Uh, and then uh, when the, later on the uh, South Korean National Assembly began to invent, when Korea became a democracy, the South Korean National Assembly began to investigate what had happened, and they asked uh, the UI, U.S. to provide, uh, you know, wanted some U.S. officials to testify an ambassador and the general who was the head of the Joint Command at the time, the United States, the Bush, first Bush administration, refused to have anyone testify, and instead they wrote what they called a white paper that, you know, that, that was sort of a chronology of everything the United States said and did during that time, and basically trying to shift all responsibility of what had happened to the Korean generals. And when I got that... Uh, uh, white paper, I knew instinctively that it was, uh, uh, you know, a white bunch of lies and not, you know, it was very carefully phrased and they missed so much missing. And I, so what I did was I used the Freedom of Information Act and I went through that document, which was quite long, uh, about 35 pages. And I filed a FOIA request for basically records of every meeting they talked about in the white paper, every memo, every letter, every document. And I asked for those records, and they slowly, over a period of years, I started getting them from the State Department, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, and the National Security Council. Uh, and I, after about six or seven years, I had pretty much what I wanted. I had tried to get documents from the CIA, but they, CIA took about 15 years uh, to release the documents I had asked for. But anyway, in 1996, 
uh, I had enough, and, and it, it turned out that at that time, uh, the, the generals who had, who had attacked Kwangju and put down the uprising were on trial in South Korea. And so it was a really good sort of news peg for a story. Uh, and I wrote this lengthy story for the newspaper I was working for at the time called the Journal of Commerce. I also ran this story uh, as a series in a Korean language magazine in Seoul. And uh, these stories, uh, basically what, they, what I found in the documents was that the U.S. had actually uh, you know, given a green light to the use of military force to put down gigantic student and labor demonstrations that took, part, took place in South Korea in, in the spring of 1980. One document in particular showed the U.S. ambassador meeting with the Korean military strongman and saying, you know, we will not oppose your use of military force. You know, just be careful. Uh, then another document showed uh, was the minutes of a White House meeting on May 22, 1980, where uh, the all the top people in the Carter administration, CIA, uh, D Department of Defense, State Department, et cetera, met. And they decided one day after the people had seized the city and knowing full well they had, they had taken up arms because people had been massacred in the streets, they decided at that time that there was no choice for the United States but to use military force to put this down. And so, you know, my documents really showed what had been hidden until that time, which was that the U.S. had basically uh, approved use of military force. They hadn't given the orders to kill people in Kwangju, but they were complicit in the use of military force against the, the people of South Korea. And uh, the documents you know, were electrified people in Korea at the time. Uh, I had uh, these kind of the, the amazing experience of the day after my stories came out, there were big demonstrations in Seoul at the U.S. Embassy and sit-ins and so on. But I hardly got any attention here because, you know, American press is really not interested in, in countries that are, have close strategic relationships with the United States. And, uh, you know, they would much rather focus on a place like China where there was a similar event in Tiananmen Square. Uh, but, you know, in China we have much less influence than South Korea. There's kind of Cold War thinking about Korea that uh, is persistent in the, in the media. So, you know, when you have a story that you're trying to, when you have a truth you're trying to find and you know some specific things you're looking for, you know, FOIA can be extremely useful. In this case, it just blew away the official story completely and, and really showed to the, the Korean people, you know, what the true face of the United States was at that time. And uh, I was just there, and, you know, I just returned a week ago from, from my visit there. And I, I really learned, you know, from people that I met, particularly in Guangzhou, just how significant my stories were and how deeply, how, 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 how much it meant to the democracy movement in, in South Korea. And so, you know, getting and ferreting out documents like this is, is critical to understanding, you know, any kind of, uh, crisis in U.S. foreign policy or any kind of action by the U.S. government, but you have to be persistent, you have to be patient, and you, and you, and you have to really sort of know what you're looking for. Uh, and I had very little, I mean, I did have people, I mean, I talked to a lot of sources when I did the story, of course, uh, but it, it, you know, I, I really didn't have any 
any whistleblowers, you know, but, but, but my, uh, my documents served as, as sort of what, you know, the role that whistleblowers play in other stories. So I yeah, would say that uh, when you concentrate on what you know, you can learn a lot from FOIA. Yeah, it does seem critical that you have to know what to ask for. I, I watched that uh, recent film about the break-in in Media Pennsylvania, the FBI office, and all the documents stolen by activists with some, some guts there. And, and it was with COINTELPRO being mentioned in those documents that somebody knew to FOIA it and, and learn something about it. Um, and, of course, if you don't have any sources or you don't know what to ask for or they're denying the FOIA requests, you've got to find... Uh, a whistleblower. Uh, I want to. I want to come right. back to to your sources, but I want to bring uh, Trevor Tim in on the conversation. And I and I want to remind people because there are a lot of people listening and nobody asking questions. Uh, ask questions uh, because I don't know what you want to ask. Um, Trevor, uh, you've been looking at uh, the the harassment, the persecution, the prosecution of whistleblowers in recent years, uh, including uh, and fundamentally going back to a, a World War I-era law, the Espionage Act. Can you, can you talk about how that's being used and what's being done and, and what can be done about it? Sure. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people at this point have heard of the Espionage Act because uh, Edward Snowden uh, has charges against him under the Espionage Act and Chelsea Manning has but for decades the law was basically considered a ghost law. It was it had barely been used at all since World War One. Uh, I mean Daniel Ellsberg was was there was an attempted prosecution of him under the Espionage Act, but it had only been used uh, two other times until the end of the Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama administration. And you know, like you said, it is a law that was written uh, almost a hundred years ago. That was. Uh, uh, written to uh, criminalize spies, essentially people who sell government secrets to foreign governments uh, for profit. Uh, it wasn't meant to go after leakers or whistleblowers who want to give information to the American public for free, uh, you know, because they're concerned about the public interest. And what has happened over the last six or eight years is the government has kind of warped this Espionage Act into an Official Secrets Act, uh, and they have, under the Obama administration, they've prosecuted uh, eight or nine uh, leakers, depending on, your, on how you count, and it's more than all other administrations combined. Um, and it's, it's not only a problem that they have kind of fashioned this Espionage Act into a, a way to, um, to go after leakers and whistleblowers, but it's the, the, really, the real draconian nature of the law um, when you look at how it's written, it's so broadly written in some aspects and so restrictively written in others that if somebody is charged under it, um, uh, say Edward Snowden, for example, he would not be able to tell uh, the jury in his Espionage Act trial uh, his motive uh, for leaking information. So uh, it does not matter under the law whether he... Uh, sold secrets uh, to the United States' worst enemies, or he gave information to a journalist for free. Uh, the jury uh, technically should not even know that this occurred. 
he, w- he wouldn't be able to bring up in his trial the fact that uh, Congress changed the law based on what he leaked, uh, that he wouldn't be able to bring up the fact that uh, uh, multiple courts have ruled what the NSA has done uh, is illegal. Um, he would, basically, he would not be able to um, tell the jury the benefits of um, what his leaks uh, caused. Uh, he also wouldn't be able to argue that there wasn't any harm to national security done by his leaks. You know, we've heard all of these government officials uh, come out on national TV and say that Snowden harmed national security, yet they can't actually point to anything uh, specific uh, that indicates that. Uh, and obviously, the government has a long history of exaggerating national security claims uh, to try to convince the American public that one leak or another was unjustified. Um, so all of these uh, things would be going against Edward Snowden or any whistleblower. Uh, you know, this is the exact same thing that happened to Daniel Ellsberg uh, before his trial was dismissed because of government misconduct. You know, he was on the witness stand, and essentially his lawyer was ready to ask him why he leaked the Pentagon Papers, and the prosecution objected, and the, and the judge. Uh, ruled that actually he couldn't even tell the jury why he leaked the Pentagon Papers. And, uh, you, you know, you'll note that in the vast, vast majority of other laws uh, and other crimes, uh, motive plays a huge factor where it doesn't at all in leaking. Uh, so it basically cuts off all of the defenses that, that Snowden or any other whistleblower would use uh, to defend themselves against this charge. And so it's very, very easy for uh, a jury to convict somebody for leaking, even if those leaks uh, did a lot of good, and that person is looked at as a traditional whistleblower. And so I'm hoping uh, now that the uh, at least the first aspect of the, the NSA debate in Congress is over, that some, at least one congressman, hopefully a lot more, will have the courage to uh, look at the Espionage Act and figure out how uh, Congress can start thinking about amending or repealing it because uh, it is one of the great injustices in this country. What about, I mean, it's a very interesting point that people should be aware of, that when, when important people in Washington demand that Edward Snowden uh, come home and make his case in court, they are misinformed or intentionally deceiving because he's not allowed to make his case in court. But what about the, the sentencing phase? That is, I mean, a rather hopeless, gloomy scenario, but after you're convicted, um, because a lot of us found it a little disturbing when Chelsea Manning, uh, then I guess Bradley Manning, was convicted and facing sentencing, uh, she was able to present lengthy evidence about a traumatic childhood and how she was damaged and therefore not completely to blame for her horrible actions, but didn't chose, as I understood it, not to present any case that, uh, that these were in fact noble, honorable, moral, legal, decent actions. Um, uh, was, that a, was that a choice in fact available to her? Yeah, well, so uh, that, that's a great point. You know, uh, during the trial, um, the, the, a defendant whistleblower would never be able to tell the jury any of these things. But after the jury convicts the person, uh, that person is then allowed to present evidence to the judge uh, for leniency purposes that, uh, that you know, the, the information leaked did not harm anybody or that there were benefits to the leaks. Um, or any other mitigating circumstances that the judge can take into account when doing sentencing. Um, unfortunately, you know, the judge's hands in the United States, because of 
um, mandatory minimums sometimes are uh, limited in, in what leniency can bring. But we also know that in leaking cases, you know, there isn't really that much leniency that is given, at least in, in the modern era. Uh, you know, look at the Chelsea Manning trial. In, during the trial, the, the U.S. government openly admitted that they could not uh, produce any evidence that uh, Chelsea Manning's leaks harmed national security. Yet when it came to sentencing, Chelsea Manning got 35 years in jail, which is actually much, much more than most actual spies get when they are convicted um, under the Espionage Act. Um, so, you know, in that situation, um, uh, you know, showing that there was no harm done by these leaks I, barely helped at all. I mean, maybe she would have gotten 70 years if uh, that hadn't occurred. But still, um, you know, it's when, you know, convicted under a serious statute like the Espionage Act, judges are, are not likely to go lenient on the, def the defense, uh, no matter what they, they show at that point in time. Yeah, I was thinking more in terms of noble motivation rather than apology and, uh, and looking ahead to a demand for a pardon. But what's oh, happening... Oh, right, yeah, I mean, same thing. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just agreeing. This, you know, it's, it's just another thing that they could bring up if they, if they wanted to, um, but may not yeah. make much of a difference. Yeah, well, clearly uh, her lawyers didn't think so. Uh, Tim uh, Shorak, what's what's happening? Uh, well, uh, well, I, I'm I'm looking at this uh, this webcast screen, uh, and someone is uh, asking to uh, to ask a question on the phone. Uh, we aren't using that technology. Uh, rather, you need to ask your question via Twitter uh, or get on the webcast, and you'll find the link at standupfortruth.org and type in your question, and then I'll see it. Uh, type it in either of those places, and I will read it for our guests um, because they want to know what you want to ask. And it, it's amazingly, people keep showing up late. The number is steadily climbing of people on this uh, uh, phone call, but I'm the only one asking questions. And, and I want to ask you, Tim, uh, what you've seen of a change in the climate that many have talked about in terms of, of sources. I mean, how do you, how do you find sources on, the, on this kind of uh, story to begin with uh, in years gone by? And, and are they still as easy to find now? Well, first, let me say that in terms of the Espionage Act, I, I was just totally blown away and you know, shocked uh, how they use this against Thomas Drake, the NSA whistleblower. I mean, here's a guy who, he didn't leak anything classified whatsoever. He gave some documents to a reporter for the Baltimore Sun about a failed program that he actually blew the whistle on to the Defense Department Office of Inspector General, and his name was then leaked by the Defense Department to the Justice Department after the New York Times stories about the warrantless surveillance came out in 2005, and he was caught up in an investigation, and they decided to use the Espionage Act against him. And they actually threatened, you know, the, the prosecutor threatened to put him in jail for life for this. And, you know, eventually the case was thrown out or it was reduced to a single misdemeanor. 
but but the fact is, his life was just thrown upside down. He lost his pension. You, you know, he it was very you know, and, and other people that he had worked with who also blew the whistle. Uh, you know, had FBI raid their homes. He put guns to their heads. Just unbelievable use uh, use and misuse of this law. These people were were not spies. They were like the most loyal of Americans trying to uncover you know flaws in our in our system and, 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 and make them, make them, you know, tell the proper people in through the proper channels. And it was just a heinous use of this, of this law. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's really troubling, so troubling that the Obama administration has been using this again and again, more than any president in our, in our history. Uh, but as, you know, as far as sources, uh, you know, people come to me the same way they always did. Uh, it's just that you have to be it, – it's, it's, it's not so much the – I mean, the prosecution of the whistleblowers, if you, somebody comes to you with classified information, obviously, you know, you really have to be extremely careful now because, you know, that whistleblower, as has happened a few times lately, you know, can go to jail uh, for, for providing you with that, or you may be forced to testify as a journalist at their trial, as uh, James Risen of the New York Times was, uh, so it's it, it really you know puts this uh, you know s- s- you know it's very scary uh, uh, atmosphere to do reporting in. But you know people come to me the same way as they always did, uh, and you know I mean th- th- despite uh, the mass surveillance we're under, people use you know email just to contact you, but you always have to meet people. Uh, you know, in person, and be very careful about where you meet. Uh, you can arrange meetings, you know, by code or whatever. Uh, but but you you have to have your your critical you know discussions or interviews uh, in in person. And sometimes that means traveling hundreds or even thousands of miles because you can't you can't do this on the telephone. And you have to be extremely careful. Uh, you know, it's it's just a it's just a terrible atmosphere, you know, to do to do reporting in. It makes it much harder uh, to to actually find people who are willing to come out and you know pass on the proper documents that you can build a story around. I think we should we should make clear, Tim. Assuming that I've got it right, we should make clear that James Risen, uh, while he did have to talk, he did not have to reveal a source, and he refused to reveal a source. And we organized we meaning RootsAction.org and and allied organizations, uh, in, including I think Freedom of the Press Foundation, organized uh, a lot of pressure on the Department of Justice to drop that demand. Uh, on him, uh, and and he didn't. But the man accused of being his source is now looking at uh, three and a half years in prison. What what does that what does that do for the ease of mind of journalists, and what does it do for the for the availability of sources? Well, I, I, it, 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 it's scary. It's frightening because you know you don't you don't want as a journalist you don't want to you know uh, do something that'll put somebody in jail for. You know, anytime. You know, one year, three years, ten years. You don't want that, and so I think it you know makes you more risk. You you know less willing to take certain kind of risks. So you know, and it also I think you know we we don't know how many people have decided not to reveal you know you know classified information that should be revealed because we don't know the extent of this fear. But certainly, it stopped 
it stopped a lot of people. And and I think that you know, it, well, it just, millions, it just right? I mean, we know it's just, millions. I mean, yeah. Right. Well, we don't know how many, you know, people have, we know that millions of people have security clearances, <laughs> unbelievable amount of people have security clearances in this country and have access to classified classified information. So, you know, and the thing is, like, you know, I was, uh, I was talking to one of the NSA whistleblowers the other day who was telling me that, uh, you know, she was concerned because uh, a lot of this information that the NSA has been using under the, the, under these you know this net you know these surveillance nets they've been spreading across the country. A lot of this information gets in the hands of you know local law enforcement, the FBI, and and even you know these fusion centers which are all over the country, right, in states. And so the diffusion of this surveillance data is really scary in a lot of ways because we're not only talking about, you know, metadata, telephone. We're talking about your banking information. We're talking about your health information. We're talking about everything that, that you know, any information about you as a person and your relationships the government has, and that goes into CIA databases, and it's drawn on by even local, you know, like National Guard and, you know, kinds of agencies you don't normally think of as gathering intelligence. And so, you know, she called it to me. She told me it was like population control. That's what we're moving toward. And I think that's just an extremely dangerous, dangerous system to be in. I couldn't agree more. Uh, that was Tim Shorek. Trevor, Tim, you've been following, I think, uh, the recent legislative uh, events uh, and the, the, these sections of the Patriot Act that have been one of the excuses for this gathering of metadata that uh, that Tim was just referring to, uh, was allowed to, to lapse for a moment there, and the world didn't collapse. Um, I, I, one question that I think a lot of people have been wondering is, do you imagine that anything actual stopped for a few days there at the NSA or elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, and secondly, when this USA Freedom Act uh, gets passed, what's, what, if anything, is good in it and what is uh, actually as bad as before or worse? Well, uh, both good questions. You know, the only reason I think that they actually did stop it for a couple of days was because you know, we know that they know that this program has been basically useless. You know, they have been running this for six years officially, like under the FISA court's authority, um, but we're doing it completely illegally for four or six years before that. Um, illegally, I mean, in like multiple aspects, you know, the fact that the FISA court didn't even know. It would, it, they've been doing it illegally the whole time as far as the federal court is concerned uh, because, you know, we learned just before uh, the, this whole debate about the USA Freedom Act and the Patriot Act that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that NSA mass surveillance under the Patriot Act is illegal, uh, that Congress didn't actually authorize it under the statute, that the the NSA can't just secretly reinterpret the plain meaning of, of the English language uh, without the American public knowing. Um, it, you know, as far as uh, the USA uh, Freedom Act is concerned, um, my opinion is that uh, it is both a historic uh, bill and also wholly inadequate and uh, pretty much just symbolic change. Uh, I say it's historic because it's the first time in 40 years that Congress has 
indicated that they want to restrict uh, an intelligence agency rather than expand its power. Uh, You know, that hasn't happened since the Church Committee. However, the bill barely touches on, uh, you know, 80% of the Snowden leaks. You know, this this bill doesn't affect uh, really the Internet surveillance that the government has been doing across most of the world with the the FISA Amendments Act. You know, shortly after the Snowden leaks, the New York Times reported that basically the NSA is, is scanning most of the emails that come in and out of the United States. Uh, whether uh, people are completely innocent or, or, or um, accused of a crime or not, uh, you know, it do- the bill doesn't touch what's known as Executive Order 12333, which is essentially a Reagan-era executive order that the NSA has kind of secretly interpreted to mean that they can spy on the rest of the world with basically no restrictions. Um, it, what good is in the, in the USA Freedom Act? Well, it... Uh, at least ends the phone program as we know it, or at least it's going to end it in, in six months. Uh, the Obama administration cynically and shamefully restarted the phone surveillance program uh, the other day once it passed. But after six months, this information will no longer be held by the NSA. But the, the actual uh, text of the bill that I like are the transparency provisions, the fact that the FISA court will now be forced to declassify uh, its secret opinions, uh, so it won't be that we'll find out five years later that they ruled something unconstitutional. We'll find out hopefully fairly soon after. And the fact that the judges can now uh, appoint a, a friend of the court to kind of represent privacy, whereas before it was kind of this one-sided argument. Um, you know, these are these are unequivocally good things. The bill should obviously be a lot stronger, um, but I was at least a little bit heartened uh, yesterday, right before the bill passed, uh, Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, tried to uh, change the bill at the last minute. He offered three amendments. He didn't allow anybody else to offer any amendments. And his all three amendments would have gutted the bill completely, gotten rid of, you know, the bill is already a compromise of a compromise, but he would have gotten rid of pretty much everything good left in it. And amazingly, um, against the odds, uh, the Senate uh, voted down all three of Mitch McConnell's amendments. Um, so, you know, again, the bill is, is, is certainly inadequate when we talk about what we want out of the NSA and the reform that we want, but uh, it is a step ultimately in the right direction, and hopefully this is the beginning and not the end of, of this debate. Well, let's hope so. Um, but that, that little phrase, will not be held by the NSA, I think uh, a lot of people might miss the meaning there. If, if people don't want their information uh, seized and held by anybody, and it's now going to be seized and held by so-called private corporations working hand-in-glove with the government, right. uh, is that better at all? Is it perhaps even worse than having it uh, seized and held by the government that is supposedly overseen by their representatives. I mean, nobody takes that seriously, but that's the, the theory. Uh, I mean, is that is that an improvement that there's been some sort of popular demand for? We would like to have our Fourth Amendment rights blatantly disregarded, but we would like to have everything held by private corporations. I mean, did, did anybody actually yeah. want that? Well, no. I mean, it, it's a good point, but I think we should also keep in mind that phone companies uh, for decades have had to hold on to all our phone records for 18 months. 
Um, and one of the amendments that was actually voted down, one of the McConnell amendments, was a data retention policy, which would have forced the telephone companies to hold our data for years at a time. And the Senate actually voted that down. Uh, so the telephone companies won't have to hold on to our data any longer uh, than they already have been uh, for decades, uh, which is slightly good news. The other good news is that uh, the, it is now enshrined in law that uh, if the NSA wants to go to the telephone companies, they have to get a court order first. Uh, for years, when this was done in secret, they didn't have to. They just had to tell the FISA court afterwards. They were like, oh, yeah, we decided to search uh, all of the contacts on this number. Um, you know, again, it's, it's kind of a veneer of change because we're talking about the FISA court here, which, uh, as I'm sure many readers have read before, uh, you know, has um, gone through tens of thousands of government requests over the last 40 years and, and rejected only a handful of them. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the transparency, number one, is good because it actually forces these companies to uh, kind of stand up for their users, whereas, it, you know, when they were, when it was a completely secret agreement, they would just hand over information uh, without even um, considering it. But I think your larger point uh, is, is uh, spot on, which is that we shouldn't be trusting corporations with their data either. And that, uh, you know, Congress is never going to protect uh, all of our privacy and that intelligence agencies are never going to be completely reined in, and so we need to figure out uh, better ways uh, to go about uh, protecting our personal information. And I think technology is uh, one of those ways that we can do that by using encryption tools uh, that were developed in a completely open source manner, um, you know, and kind of getting off of the traditional phone system where phone companies hold our data, uh, but using different... Uh, um, voice over IP um, phone systems and encrypted text messaging and uh, email applications that uh, we can kind of pr protect ourselves from at least some of the mass surveillance uh, without the companies or the government ever getting involved. At least that's the ultimate goal, I think. I, I want to uh, make have, an... Can I, can I add something here about the telecoms? Uh, uh, yeah, abs absolutely. But I want to I want to make an appeal to the growing crowd of people who are listening here <laughs> to two of the best journalists and activists we have around, and are and we had a much smaller call last night with other speakers, but people were asking questions. So if there's something technically wrong, it's not working. Uh, send me an email later because I want to know that at david at davidswanson.org. Uh, but please uh, feel free to ask a question. You will be the first, and it will get get asked. Uh, Tim Short, go ahead. Well, you know, what I've, what I've told, the, I've done a couple of interviews on this in the last couple of days, uh, and, and the thing is, if you look at historically at these telecoms, I mean, Trevor is right. I mean, they've you know, had this very close relationship with uh, NSA and intelligence for a long time, but the way they, you know, before, the way they worked in the past was the director of the NSA would like, you know, make a phone call to the CEO or the number two guy at a company and say, hey, you know, for national security reasons, we really need this, and can you, can you help us, please? And they, you know, usually go along. And, uh, but, you know, in, in the period prior to 9-11, in 2001, early 2001, when, you know, Matt, when we hadn't even been attacked like the, the way, you know, in, as we were on 9-11, and there wasn't this, you know, just sudden justification for it, Michael Hayden, 
the then director of the NSA, went to a lot of these telecom companies and asked them, you know, to provide some of the call records. And many of them, all of them went along except for one company, which was Quest. And they, they didn't think, uh, the CEO of Quest didn't think this was right. Uh, but, you know, it's astonishing that all these companies just basically went along. And that was not even, you know, this mass domestic surveillance like we're talking about now. So they can be, they can be uh, you know, cajoled and, and pressured, you know, to hand things over, especially when there is some kind of emergency or some kind of incident that happens that they use for the sort of overall excuse. And uh, my sense is, you know, I think, you know, yeah, there are lots of ways we can protect ourselves with encryption, but I think we, you know, it, the, the issue to me is much more political, and I think we've just got to be keep, keep pushing to get changes. What's happened in the last couple of days in the Congress is a very good start, and there's some protections here that, would, you know, that we're going back to what we had before, but I think we really, it is an issue of, of, of the political system and, and making, you know, basically ending the right of the NSA to do surveillance on anybody they want when they choose and going back to a system where we, you know, have the Fourth Amendment and you have to get warrants for, for this excuse. kind of surveillance. I, you know, you know, Trevor, did you want to get in here? Yeah, uh, I, I, going off of what Tim said, it's, it's you know, we're actually going to see uh, quite the combination of both uh, the political side of things and the encryption and technology side of things in the next battle over uh, NSA and FBI surveillance, which is uh, essentially, if, uh, um, you know, as this NSA debate has been going on, the FBI and the NSA uh, have been claiming that uh, encryption is increasingly forcing them uh, to go dark, what they say, um, that they can no longer um, conduct surveillance of terrorists or criminals, which is, of course, absurd. You know, we live in the, the golden age of surveillance. Uh, but they see in, encryption as kind of this threat uh, to their power. And they have been uh, lobbying Congress very hard to pass a law that would essentially outlaw the use of encryption by uh, at least big tech companies, possibly everybody. And uh, this is going to uh, be a big debate in Congress over the next six months or a year. And the political will of the American people and whether or not they push back against this will happen and, you know, ex expose the, you know, fundamental flaws in the, the reasoning of the FBI, <clears throat> you know, at the same time that they talk about how cybersecurity is this, the most important issue that we face, they're essentially saying that we should uh, weaken security for every American uh, in the name of them solving crimes, you know, essentially saying that uh, it's more <clears throat> important uh, for them to be able to uh, investigate everyone rather than protect Americans um, from having their information taken, whether it's by government or criminals. Um, but the uh, political will of the American people will probably, in the end, decide this issue. And so uh, it, it should be interesting to see these kind of these two kind of, kind yeah. of uh, half solutions to the surveillance problem converge in Congress over the next year or two. 
Tim, you mentioned earlier Tom Drake, one of our uh, whistle celebrated whistleblowers, who's part of a tour in, of Europe right now as part of Stand Up for Truth, right. uh, speaking in England, Norway, Sweden, Germany, and, and expecting to make a great deal of news at the end of this week in Germany, presenting a petition uh, on behalf of Americans and Germans demanding that our two governments stop collaborating on this sort of thing, as well as on drone murders. But uh, I, I wonder... How do you compare, either of you, how do you compare what's happening in the United States with what's happening and has happened in the past in other countries? Um, because we're supposed to be the land of the free, and we've had a heck of a lot of uh, wars for freedom in recent years. We ought to be extra free. Um, are, how do our rights in this regard compare with what you know and, and, and your experiences with journalism in, in South Korea or, or anywhere else? Well, when I, when I was in Korea, I had uh, I was I participated participated in a press conference at the National Assembly, which is their Congress, uh, with with uh, two lawmakers uh, who want to republish a book about that uprising I talked about earlier. That's now out of print because they feel it's uh, very important to get that book out. So you know, younger generation of Koreans understands what what's what happened and. I, I really hope we can do that because I'd like to see the English version come out again too. Uh, but during this, uh, at the press conference, I was accompanied by a woman uh, who was a representative there who was a Korean whistleblower. Uh, two, uh, several years ago, she was uh, a police investigator in the Seoul Police Department. The intelligence came to her and said that the National Intelligence Service was using social media to harass and terrorize citizens who were speaking out. I mean, they would go on Twitter or Facebook and tell someone who was, you know, a, a critic of the government that their daughter was going to be raped or something like that. Of course, disguising them as they weren't, they, no one, they, did, they didn't know who they were, but this was the intelligence service was doing this. She began to investigate it, and then she was told by the chief of police to knock off the investigation and uh, she was sidelined into another office, and so she blew the whistle, went to the media, and it became a huge, it rocked the government, actually. It became a huge scandal, and the head of the intelligence service was, was uh, fired. Uh, but, but the thing is, when I was there, I said to her, you know, I, I, I honor, I said, you know, I want to say, I you know, really respect people like you who speak out. And I come from America, where whistleblowers are now a, a threatened species, and that, you know, I, I mentioned that there's been more, uh, more uh, uh, you know, court actions against whistleblowers at any time in history. And it's really depressing to think that, you know, in the past, this is true on torture, generally we had a pretty good record, you know, uh, it, 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 generally I'm talking about. And we didn't officially endorse torture like we did during the, during the Bush administration and even later. And, you know, we... we, we Felt like you know this is a free country where you know you could you could you can leak stuff and not be punished for it because it was in the, it was in the interest of the public interest and we're not there anymore and uh, you know so here in South Korea this woman who was a whistleblower is now an elected member of the National Assembly and uh, the other you know two weeks ago I went to buy a MacBook Air at the Apple Store in Bethesda and who did they have help me it was Tom Drake who works in the Apple Store. Here's a guy who served years and years his country, and now he's relegated to working on Apple Store. You know, he really knows his technology, but it's just sad to see how 
we treat people. And uh, it, it, it just kind of makes me sick to see this undermining of the democracy of, of a country that, you know, I love very much. And uh, I, think, I think it's painful for, for a lot of us, you know, especially who've you know, been through a lot of struggles uh, over the past to, to see this happen. This was something that you had mentioned earlier as well, Trevor, the, the sacrifices that whistleblowers go through uh, even short of being locked up in a cage. Can you, can you talk about what they, what they are up against and, and maybe even what we ought to be doing more to, to help and support and encourage them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Tim mentioned the case, the tragic case of Thomas Drake, um, earlier, you know, he was one of the original NSA whistleblowers back in, you know, after 2001 and, and 2005 and 2006. There was actually a group of them, um, which Tim has, has, has written about uh, eloquently and extensively. You know, um, Thomas Drake, despite the fact that his, the Espionage Act case against him fell apart at the last minute, you know, he uh, lost his job, uh, he lost his security clearance, he lost his pension, uh, you know, essentially he went from uh, being very well paid and an executive uh, in the intelligence community to, to being unemployable. Um, he saw his savings uh, wiped away. He saw his family destroyed by this. Uh, and the same thing happened to uh, a lot of the national security whistleblowers. You know, they see themselves, even if they uh, aren't successfully prosecuted by the government, they see themselves uh, being bankrupted and uh, uh, unemployable in the intelligence community where they made their careers beforehand uh, and essentially have to start their lives over. Uh, you know, Bill Binney, uh, who was um, uh, another uh, important NSA whistleblower, you know, who worked at the NSA for more than 40 years, was, uh, uh, you know, brought out of his house at gunpoint by FBI agents, you know, he was, uh, when he was in the shower, um, you know, just totally disrespected. Uh, and, you know, the same thing has happened to him. He, you know, loses his security clearance and, uh, you know, can't get a job uh, at uh, any place where he uh, has expertise. And so, you know, this is really the uh, reason that so many people are afraid to speak out, um, you know, even if they are not one of the few people that gets prosecuted. Um, they are, uh, you know, jeopardizing their livelihoods and their families. And, uh, you know, that's really a position that, that it's very hard to ask to put, put somebody in. And, and yet they have never stopped yeah, you know, speaking you out. Know, and uh, no, Hang on half not. a second, Tim. I, 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 you are the, the only other speaker, and I'm going to give, you, give it straight to you. But let, I just want to mention that Bill Binney is going to be on this webcast on, two days from now on Friday and has never stopped speaking out, uh, and, that I, and that I think it would be horribly depressing uh, if nobody is asking questions on this webcast because they are reluctant to speak out or use <laughs> their name or even a phony name because uh, you must have questions. There are a lot of people listening to this, uh, and you have 10 minutes left to get one in. Uh, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say that in terms of you know, Bill Binney, there's another uh, whistleblower he worked with called Kirk Wiebe, uh, who was an analyst that he worked, they worked together for a long time, and you know, in that article that Trevor referred to in The Nation, I wrote about the whistleblowers. Uh, it was about this, they blew the whistle on this program that was very expensive, was, went to contractors. They spent billions and billions of dollars. When they had a program they had developed in-house that was far more effective and actually protected 
personal rights. It protected or you know information about Americans who were listened to, who were being monitored on the telephone. And uh, this small program was small scale, but it had really good technology. And Bill Binney had designed it basically. And after they left the NSA, they went to try to sell this technology to some other agencies. They went to the Army Intelligence Security Command. They went to the CIA. They went to a couple other ones. And every time they got in there, they would they, they, those agencies would get a call from you know someone high up in the NSA and tell them, "Don't work with these guys. Forget it." So they were, you know, not only you know they lost their livelihood, but they couldn't even, you know. They couldn't even make a living by by doing what they did well after they left, and they really harassed these people to the you know to the end. And I think they're going to keep speaking out, and they continue to. And I think you know we really have to salute their courage. Yeah, I agree. Bill Benny spoke uh, uh, as part of Stand Up for Truth last night in Chicago, this evening in Minneapolis, and he and uh, Kirk Wiebe will be on this webcast two days from now, so we can we can support them by uh, by tuning in. But but what else? We've just got a, a few minutes left in this webcast. Um, uh, Trevor and Tim, what can what else can we be doing to to support and encourage whistleblowers? I think there's got to be a space for people to do it. I mean, you know, like this, I saw some report today about how the Office of Inspector Generals are really, you know, not doing what they should be doing. I think there needs to be a strengthening of that. I mean, a lot of people don't know that these Inspector Generals are in every agency and they're supposed to be completely independent and they're supposed to enforce the law that the agencies themselves don't enforce and look at how... You know, you know, agencies screw up and they're spending in their policies, but I, I, but that's they don't work the way they're supposed to, and I think that could be really strengthened. And there needs to be some kind of space, safe space, where whistleblowers can feel they can, you know, provide information about you know programs that are, you know, wrong or immoral or illegal and be able to do it in a way they can protect themselves. And maybe that's what, you know, Trevor was talking about earlier in Congress, you know, other issues to look at besides, you know, what they voted on the other day in terms of surveillance, other mechanisms to get people to do it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's in this climate, it's really hard when you can use any excuse to crack down. You know, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was sort of interesting that today there was this big story about this guy caught in Boston was going to behead somebody and the terrorist thing and you have to wonder sometimes about how the FBI is sort of doing these you know doing these arrests and whether there's a little bit of uh, you know sort of using an incident like this to say well look this is why we need surveillance and that kind of thing there's so much manipulation that goes on underneath the surface I think that that's kind of what scares me well, with with the FBI, it's tended to be not so much using incidents as manufacturing incidents, as it manufacturing them. Yeah, true. I mean, the, the ISIS in Brooklyn headline was, you know, the FBI putting thoughts into the head of some guy in Brooklyn who had exactly. no contact whatsoever with ISIS. With uh, with yeah, right. ISIS. Um, right. Uh, Trevor, uh, any uh, final thoughts on on what else we we can be doing legislatively in terms of lobbying and political action and uh, in terms of building institutions uh, what what can what can people do to help the situation 
You know, I think uh, contacting Congress and, and, and talking about how the fact that whistleblowers, national security whistleblowers in particular, have uh, basically no rights if they're prosecuted by the government uh, is really important. Um, and, and actually just raising awareness about that in general with the public. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that fact. Uh, they think that, um, you know, Edward, like you had mentioned before, that, uh, oh, Edward Snowden should come back to the U.S. and just tell his story to the jury, uh, when in fact that that's actually impossible if you were to come back. Um, so I think public awareness uh, about the plight of whistleblowers is just as important as uh, contacting uh, members of Congress. You know, there's, a, there's uh, also great whistleblower support groups, uh, a government accountability mm -hmm. project, which is currently doing a donation drive. Um, their national security project has, has uh, represented a lot of these uh, important national security whistleblowers. Um, so, you know, I think those three things uh, are really important, public awareness, um, getting Congress involved, and then supporting the groups that uh, support these guys. And, and that is work that, that both of you have been doing. Uh, we've been speaking with, that was Trevor Tim, and we've also been speaking with Tim Shorak, uh, two people that I assume you have been reading since you're on this webcast, but you should be following and should be reading their wonderful and important work. Uh, there are upcoming webcasts the rest of this week, uh, tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern Time with Sam Husseini from the Institute for Public Accuracy and with author and law professor Marjorie uh, and I already mentioned Friday there will actually be a double header at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, there will be we will have Bill Binney and Kirk Wiebe, and then at 9 p.m. Robert McChesney and Jeff Cohen. Uh, and the next day, Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Kevin Gostola and Marsha Coleman Adebayo. So. Tune in for all of those. You can find them all at StandUpForTruth.org. Help us out by spreading the word on social media, regular media, and offline real world uh, about StandUpForTruth.org. And this is happening because of the sponsorship of Roots Action Education Fund and Expose Facts. So you can go to RootsAction.org or ExposeFacts.org. The Koch brothers are completely letting us down. We need your financial support to do this kind of work. Uh, thank you, everybody who's been on this call, and thank you especially to Tim and Trevor. Thank you. Thank you, David, for holding this. Uh, thanks for joining in. Much appreciated. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night.